Good Friday is simultaneously overwhelming, I think, and too well known, on the other hand. And so as we stand in this, what is sometimes a difficult emotional and intellectual space of the very familiar that is also simultaneously overwhelming, maybe the best we could do tonight is just wonder together about one formational idea that we might place before our hearts and minds on this Good Friday evening, something that might assist us in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And that's this thought. You are loved in a I got this sort of way. You know that phrase, I got this. You know, what, do we, what do we mean when we say that? We mean something like, you can be 100% sure that I can do this. That is to say, I have the ability to do it. And I have the will to do it. That is to say, the character to actually follow through, to do this thing that I said I got. You know, it means I got it covered, I got it handled. You know, like this is under control, I got it. And I want to suggest that our readings tonight tell you that that's the way you're loved. From a God through his son who says, I got you. I got this. Just take your life as you actually know it with its current rhythms and routines. Just place that life before your mind and just hear these readings say to you gently, I got it. I have the capacity to take care of your life, and I have the loving will to do so. Well, obviously, that's the awesome Jesus. But as our readings tell us tonight, we get to this, I gotcha, or I got this, in a very surprising and mysterious way. I think these words that we read together in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me when trouble is so near? And I want you to notice the refreshing reality that there are no pat answers given. No, I, I actually, I'm not really, really even putting down pat answers, right? We all do that to each other all day, every day. Sometimes it's just sort of shorthand. It's colloquialisms, you know. It's, you know, even like when somebody dies, well, you know, they've gone to a better place. Well, that's true. <laughs> but those sort of, you know, pat answers when you're dealing with the kinds of things that these readings place before our hearts and minds tonight, they don't really work. And so our readings don't give us pat answers, but rather they give us this daring invitation to consider things we would rather not consider. I mean, I don't know about you, but like I can hardly sing the song we just sang. You know, like to actually consider it is almost too much. And especially to consider it in public singing. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing, awesome song. But do, are you feeling me here? It's like, it's like so much I think I just want to go for a walk and think or, you know. I just want to go sit somewhere and think because placing these things before our minds, it's actually a daring invitation to consider these things. And I would suggest this in terms of this formational idea we're working with tonight. That as you place your life as you presently know it, not your hoped for life, 
Not the life that will come when you're out of debt, not the life that will come when you're done with school, but your life as you presently know it. And begin to see yourself tonight as a person and situation in relationship with one who was forsaken. That's the big picture here. So these readings don't hide. In fact, they put right in our face, especially in Psalm 22, bad human predicaments or the kind of dark shadows that we fear that we'll sometimes never find our way out of. Maybe your own health is not good tonight. Maybe you know somebody in bad physical or mental health. Or we might think of the global political leadership issues we've got going. Or we can think of the global economy and the growing gap between the rich and the poor and the social foment that that's producing all over the world. We might think of the dark shadows of human interaction with technology or war and rumors of war that are presently on our news feeds. Or maybe tonight you think of relationship tensions or feeling friendless or worthless. Or maybe you worry about the globe, ecology, energy, sustainability. Maybe you're facing the death of a loved one. Maybe your children have hurt you. Maybe you're a parent who have hurt your children. Maybe you've got sibling rivalry going on. Oh, you know how this goes. Workplace hardships or people who feel hopelessly trapped in debt and have all kinds of money issues. People who have out-of-control calendars and busyness. And, and what these scriptures say to us is, yes, all those things are real. They're all true, but we're never there alone. We're always there with a God who put himself in our place first, especially at the worst in other words, the worst isn't this litany we just went through of the world's problems. The worst thing is, is that we're each individually trapped in sin, or at least have been. Entrapped in the sense of being unable to do the right thing. And thus, I just want you to consider with me tonight that we are then, therefore, not merely victims. But human beings are contributing consistently to human misery and are co-creators of wrong and evil and pain. And God in Christ says, I got this. I know the depth of it. I got this. And I don't just have this, an impersonal this. I have you within this. And so it's these kinds of things that perhaps were in the prophet Isaiah's mind as he says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We're, we're not merely victims of sin, but we're contributors to it. Each of us has turned to our own way. But then if that's sort of like black velvet in a, um, a jewelry store, then Isaiah pops this beautiful stone against that black background and says, but see my servant. He was familiar with pain. And this is meant to give us a picture of full identity with the grim realities of our lives. Sickness and weakness and pain and suffering. So when Isaiah, speaking of this suffering servant that we see fulfilled in Jesus, says it was our pains that he absorbed and carried. It was our disfigurements and all the wrong that is wrong with us 
So when you hear, away with him, crucify him, crucify him, you see God himself in human flesh putting himself in the worst of human suffering. The worst that people could do to each other, Jesus put himself there. This is why Isaiah says it was our pains he absorbed and carried. Our disfigurement. It was our sins that ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. Crucify him. Crucify him. And in that, our bruises are healed, Isaiah says. This little Hebrew phrase is meant to help us see that he's giving us a wholeness and fullness of life. He's making us new. He's making us humanity as God intended. Now, I don't suppose we should have a Good Friday service without a little bit of apologetics, a little bit of a defense of our Lord Jesus. And I just want to say this, and those of you who know me know that I mean this with 100% complete respect to everybody. But I just want to say, there is no world religion. And just start naming them in your mind. Start thinking of the four or five main religions of this world. And there is not a one of them that offers this deep, personal identification of God with his people. Not one. It's not even close. Even in the great monotheistic religions, it's not even close. There is no story like this in any other religion where God so identifies with his people When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, he was not speaking to the universe. You know how we talk like that? Well, the universe is speaking to me. Or, you know, sometimes people say, well, just, you know, sort of speak it out into the universe. This isn't what's happening there. Look at the the pronouns. My God, my God. This is deeply personal. He wasn't speaking into a mysterious nothingness. And there's no other religion that offers this kind of personal relationship with the world's one true creator God through his son, Jesus Christ, who bore the pain of all the world. No other religion even claims this. And so I want to say to you tonight, it's okay for you to be a Christian. You don't have to be apologetic. You should be kind should be generous but you have nothing to be ashamed of to say I've looked around I've considered and there is nothing like this nothing like this on offer in which when I look at my real checkbook my real calendar my real family of origin my real workplace my real nation my real time in history that I'm never there alone that I am loved with a, I got this kind of love. Well, we might call what I just did there a little bit of intellectual theology. The problem is we don't just do theology intellectually. We do theology emotionally, you might say, as well. We have emotional theology. And when I think of that little phrase, emotional theology, I I, I think of, well, what is it that we think God feels about us? 
And often, in spite of these scriptures, as Beth said, that for many of us, many years, we've placed ourselves before these scriptures, yet how is it that we carry around in us a default position so often that says, well, I think God's just fundamentally disappointed with me. I think he's tired of me just coming back to him over and over and over again with the same old issues. He's got to just be tired of me. So we see him as impatient. We see him wishing that we'd get our act together. That then begins to make him distant and all the personal stuff that I just went over begins to go away as we imagine that he's really not paying much attention to me because I actually don't deserve it. And then that emotional theology has its own kind of snowballing effect so that we then get to the place where we sometimes say, you know, if I'm honest, I just kind of feel like life has cheated me. I'm anxious about my future. I'm wondering if I have any real hope. And again, I just want to say to you, Knight, look at the scriptures we just read. Look at the picture they painted. God never asks us to deny hard things or to pretend they're not real. What he gives us is an opportunity to make meaning of them in a larger context. So that my real calendar, my real checkbook, my real car, my real work, it is always in relationship to him and his larger story. Let me end with this wonderful quote from Henry Nouwen who says it's possible to come to the end of our lives without ever having known who we are and what we're meant to become. Life is short. We cannot simply expect that the little we see and hear and experience will reveal to us the whole of our existence. So look at me. Your checkbook is not you. Your calendar is not you. Your car, new or used, is not you. You will never from that kind of data discover who you are. Discovering who you are requires a transcendent experience. It requires a pulling back of the veil and seeing through our readings tonight what is most real about us. That we are deeply loved by a father who says, I got you. And I got this. I got this little ball spinning in this cosmos. I got the whole cosmos. You know, whenever they discover new galaxies, I'm not like, hey, who knew, right? I mean, I got this. And I got you. Now one says, someone has to open our eyes and ears to help us discover what lies beyond our own perception. And as we said last night, I think we might have even said, starting on Palm Sunday, there's a reason the church gives itself year after year for 2,000 years to these what we now call Holy League services. And it's that we could discover who we are, that that someone who has to reveal to us who it is could be this towering figure in all of human history who we read about in these scriptures tonight. That someone could be Jesus and his words and his works could become, if we'll allow them to be, the defining aspect of our actual self. This is the invitation of Good Friday. To let Jesus show us, even if we're in dark and despairing pain, who we are in the love and plan of a God who says that we are loved in a 
I got this sort of way.